You know how it goes. You've been fighting a war for a year, and then it suddenly dawns on you. You think, oh, you know what we need for this war? We need some tanks. I hadn't thought about it before. I knew there was something missing. I'd seen, like, footage from other wars, and I was like, what is it? Why does this war look different to our war? What are we missing? Oh, yeah, tanks. We need some tanks for our war. So naturally, you go to your allies who have offered unconditional support for your war. And you say, look, guys, it's a bit embarrassing at this late stage. But I've realized that we we didn't ask for any tanks before. And weirdly, you didn't offer them either. But, you know, let's put all that behind us. And let's just say right now, clean slate. Guys, let's get some tanks involved. Could you give us some tanks? And then your allies, Germany and the U.S., they say, oh, um, yeah, sure, tanks, right. Uh, maybe, maybe we can give you some tanks. What, why, why maybe? Um, well, you were doing all right without them, weren't you? So uh, why do you need, why do you need them now? And it, it's all good, it's all good questions, isn't it? Why, why does Ukraine need tanks now? Question number one. And why was it such like a slog for ukraine to get them because you know i'm trying i'm trying to follow this war i'm trying to follow this war in ukraine i'm reading the guardian obviously and i'm thinking you know i just want to know what's going on and then you hear this stuff about ukraine suddenly wanting tanks and you think well why didn't they have any tanks to begin with <laughs> and and then after after ukraine asked for the tanks then there's all these articles about well germany's not sure whether they want to give any tanks so why I thought Germany were really behind the war. I thought we all were. So, so anyway, this is what, you know, why was a whole palaver about the tanks? Well, on January 20th, The Guardian wrote this. Ukraine frustrated as Germany holds back decision on supply of tanks. Poland says lives will be lost because of Berlin's inaction. A summit breaks up without progress over Leopard 2s. So Leopard 2s are the tanks that the Ukrainians want. There's a, there's a bit further on in the article where it says Britain offered their tanks and Ukraine was like, uh, nah. <laughs> Britain's like, we've got tanks. Would you like some of it? No, fuck you. Your tanks are shit. So they want uh, these Leopard 2s. They wanted these Leopard 2s. They got them now. But uh, initially, Germany wasn't so keen. And you wonder, well, why not? I thought we all want Ukraine to win the war, don't we? No one's in two minds. There's no, there's no, it's not complicated. No complications here. You know, it's, it's very simple. Putin is evil and it's invaded Ukraine and we're doing everything we can to stop Putin from winning. We're doing everything we can, aren't we? Like, you know, if, if Ukraine wanted some tanks, just say, right, right, of course, here you go, straight away. And also, like, why didn't you ask before? <laughs> but uh, no, apparently it was a big decision for Germany. Uh, why? Fuck knows. Is this Guardian article going to explain it? No, of course not. I've already read it and I'm... I can tell you right now, it doesn't say. So it starts off, Germany has declined to take a decision on whether to give Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine at a special international summit, prompting frustration in Kyiv and, warning and warnings from Poland that lives could be lost because of hesitation in Berlin. No pressure. Well, hesitation in Berlin? What about hesitation in Ukraine? They've been at war for a year. They've only just started asking for tanks. So Germany has done, yeah, you said that in the headline, you've said it in the first paragraph. The same information is then reiterated in the second paragraph, third, fourth, 
and fifth paragraph with little, little tidbits of more information about so one's like second paragraph's like well it'd been hoped in europe and the u.s that germany would at least allow leopards owned by countries such as poland and finland to be re-exported but despite days of pleading berlin's new appointed defense minister said no final decision has been taken and so the next paragraph is a quote from the germans who say that they need to undertake an examination of the stocks where well, i don't know like of their own stocks or of the polish stocks but either either way, it's just a it's just a no. It's a no from Germany again. In the next paragraph, it's totally it just reiterates the first like there was a meeting and it broke up without progress. Yeah, we. It's just this it is a really long article, <laughs> and like all you get is the headline sort of regurgitated in an endless number of ways, but no information why 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 does Germany why are they hesitant? What's the complication? You also get some nice uh, information about the tanks. So here you get a little picture of of a Leopard 2 tank. That's that's very useful. Looks to me like uh, like any tank I've ever seen. And you get lots of tank facts. So Germany's Leopard 2 is in widespread service across Europe. And its main armament is a 120mm L44 smoothbore gun with 42 rounds. So there you go. That's what, that's what the, <laughs> and I know, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that's all very well, but what's the secondary armament? Well, let me tell you, it's a two, seven, six, two MM machine guns, 16 smoke grenade discharges. So take that. And you say, well, okay, fair enough. But how many people are in the crew? Well, it's a crew of four. I'll have, you know, there's a commander, a gunner, a loader and a driver, of course. And it's like, okay, fine, but what's the mass of the tank? Well, the mass is 55 tons. So this, <laughs> so we're all, you know, we're all going to be on the same page about this Leopard 2. So it's important. Speed, 45 miles per hour. Is that a good speed for a tank? I don't know. It, it's the only tank speed I've ever seen in my life. I've got no. Its operational range is 280 to 340 miles. Now that's, uh, it's a range, all right. Uh, great. So that that's really helpful. And then. And so we go, we're getting halfway through the article now, it's sort of 10 paragraphs in, and it says, Berlin is at the centre of the tanks debate because it has yet to allow the re-export of any of the 2,000-plus German-made Leopard 2 tanks owned by NATO countries, holding out for the US to agree to send some of its own Abrams tanks in addition. We don't, unfortunately, get any information about the Abram tanks, so I don't know how fast they go. I don't know how many members of the crew. I don't even know what what the first armament is. Never mind the second. But the plot thickens here. So Germany. <laughs> so we're ten paragraphs in, and we find that Germany are holding out because because the US aren't sending tanks. And it's <laughs> it goes on to say the US argues that its Abram tanks, which run on jet engines, are fuel inefficient, and so difficult to supply. Well, what, do they not have any of the tanks? Why do they have fuel inefficient tanks? Anyway, we'll never know. But earlier this week, the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, directly asked the US President Joe Biden to send US tanks in return for sending its own Leopard tanks. Look, we don't want to be the only guys sending tanks. You guys have got to send some tanks as well. Obviously, Britain's in the corner. We will send tanks. No, shut up, Britain. No one wants your shitty tanks. Why are America reluctant to send tanks? Who knows? 
There's also a very informative chart giving you the Leopard 2 inventories of European and NATO countries. At the top, we've got Germany, who've got 321 Leopard 2 tanks in service and 200 in store. So, you know, they don't need to check their stocks. You could just read this Guardian article. Second on the list is Greece, who actually has more tanks in service, 353, but they don't have any in store. So that's something to consider, isn't it? In fact, no other countries have any in store except Finland, which has got 100 in service and 100 in store, and Norway, which has got 36 in service and 16 in store. Hungary, by the way, only has 12 but they've got 44 on order. So, so there. <laughs> so that's something, isn't it? That's really important. I'm glad that was in there. So we're now about, I don't know, 15 paragraphs into this article. And it says, there had been hope that Germany might, as a compromise, allow export licenses to be issued to European owners of the Leopard 2, while withholding its own Leopard tanks. So, okay, so why are Poland so desperate to send their tanks but can't because of this German export license? And why, why is Germany so reluctant to allow Poland to do it? And also, why don't Germany want to send their own? And also, why don't the Americans want to send their own? We've only got about 10 paragraphs left. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think this rate we're not going to get there. Ukraine says it wants 300 tanks to help force out the Russian invaders in the spring. Oh, it wants the tanks to fight Russia. I didn't... <laughs> to help force out Russian invaders in the spring. Tanks are good in the spring. Well, we, we already, you've already been at war for a year. You've already gone through a whole spring without them. And then it goes on to say, so although they've asked for 300 tanks, Western analysts say the supply of 100 would be enough to make an immediate difference. 100 would, would, 100 would be enough to make an immediate difference. What does that mean? One, like, one tank. When, when you've got none. So Vladimir Zelensky was at the meeting. I fucking love that name, Vladimir. He's like the Waluigi of Europe. So Zelensky said that um, urgent action was necessary because, and I quote, Russia is concentrating its forces, last forces, trying to convince everyone that hatred can be stronger than the world. <laughs> That's why urgent action is necessary. I mean, under, un under different circumstances, sure, we could wait, but Putin's trying to convince everyone that hatred can be stronger than the world. And that's something that's time sensitive. He, th he then goes on to say, it was vital to, quote unquote, speed up weapons supplies, Zelensky added, because the war with Russia amounted to a battle between freedom and autocracy. Quote, It is about what kind of world people will live in. People who dream, love and hope. End quote. That's what it's about, all right? Anyway. Anyway, forget about all that because that was January the 20th. And since then, Ukraine have got their tanks and all is well in the world. This is, this is from the BBC on the 28th of January. How tanks from Germany, US and UK could change the Ukraine war. Is this the week when the war dramatically turned in Ukraine's favour? Isn't it? It's always that week, isn't it? That's every week. It was certainly a decisive moment with a coalition of Western nations confirming 
they were finally willing to supply modern-made main battle tanks. Why? Why is it taking this long? Germany said it would send Leopard 2 tanks, and the US said it would send M1 Abram tanks. But I thought they were fuel inefficient, America. What's going on? <laughs> Both the UK and Poland have already made concrete pledges and other nations are expected to follow. Some commentators have described the move as a potential game changer. Why didn't you do it a year ago then? Jesus. Ben Barry, senior fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, tells the BBC that Western tanks will make a difference. But the former British Army brigadier also warns that the pledges made so far are unlikely to prove decisive. So then it goes on to like tell you the history of like what are tanks and why are they in modern warfare tanks have been a key element <laughs> really wow history shows tanks alone don't win battles okay uh, tank tanks can be you also be used in defense great but anyway moving on if western pledges affirmed Ukraine's armed forces could be boosted by more than one hundred tanks that would still fall well short of what Ukraine's overall military commander asked for. Yeah, why? Why won't they give them the 300? I thought we support Ukraine, what's going on? And there's just no information about the the pros, the cons, the, the fors, the against. Like there's no, no discussion about what's actually going on, why it's going on. But anyway, forget about that, that's last month, it's ancient history. Now, in the modern era of February, 2023, Ukraine are asking for jets. <laughs> Forget about tanks. We want jets now. So this is a day ago. Richie Sunak says nothing is off the table when it comes to sending fighter jets to Ukraine. But does the UK really have the capacity? Well, we have jets. So what do you mean do we have the capacity? What, what are the, where are all our jets? The Royal Air Force best jets are its next generation F-35s. But the UK will not lend them to Ukraine. Why not? While military sources say its first and oldest tranche of, of Typhoon jets are just for training and no good for combat. Oh, shucks. Well, <laughs> we, we've got really good jets, which we won't give you. We've got these other jets that are shit. So you can see the binder in. <laughs> I mean, what? why won't they give them the good jets, eh? I thought we loved Ukraine. What's going on here? Uh, this is from 21 hours ago. So creeping up to the present now. Ukraine, no imminent transfer of UK fighter jets. Wallace. There will be no immediate transfer of UK fighter jets to Ukraine, the Defence Secretary has said. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. <laughs> hey, I'm Wav Vladimir. Why, it doesn't work. Vladimir doesn't work. Renewed his call for fighter jets during a visit to the UK on Wednesday. His first visit since the Russian invasion. You've only just come to the... After all we've done, you've only just come. Ben Wallace told the BBC that supplying aircraft to use in the conflict would potentially take months. The Defence Secretary said the UK was instead focusing on using alternative provision of air cover to Ukraine. Whatever that is. Mr Wallace did not completely rule out sending aircraft. No. But said air support and supporting moving troops could be achieved by using long-range missiles. Well, yeah, it could be, but they want aircraft. Why wouldn't you give them aircraft, Wallace? You, this is some kind of... Sounds like some kind of Putin talking point to me. Speaking at a conference in Rome, he said it was more realistic and more productive to envisage the UK providing Ukraine with aircraft in the long term to ensure its security after the war with Russia has ended, right? Yeah. We'll, we'll send them all the military hardware they need, you know, once the war's done. 
Zelensky's like the uh, builders, builders from hell, where you know you get him in. It's just a small job. We'll, we'll get that that roof fixed in a few weeks. It'll, it'll be no problem. Six months in, he's like, yeah, we we need um, we're gonna need fighter jets to even get started on this roof. To be honest with you, we're gonna need like three hundred tanks. But anyway, so that's the war in Ukraine covered. Okay, I get, we're all very clear on what's going on there, thanks to the great British media. But what I get from reading that is not much, but the one thing that you get is that clearly the German government, the German military and the Americans were to some degree a little apprehensive about giving tanks to Ukraine. They'll never tell you why, because the official narrative is that we're 100% behind it and there's no conversation to be had. But clearly conversations are being had and it would be nice to be privy to some of that to have that mediated to us by the media. The other side of that is clearly Ukraine didn't feel in a position, for whatever reason, to demand or ask for tanks or whatever until fairly recently. So why was that? What What is going on? What's going on in Ukraine? Is uh, asking the question, what's going on in Ukraine? A Putin talking point. Speaking about being completely ignorant of things, let's talk about coronavirus. So has anybody else been watching the radicalization of Dr. John Campbell? I remember everybody talking about John Campbell circa 2020, his calm marking of the World Health Organization's homework was a joy to behold, methodically and hypnotically talking us through the data. A sane man in an insane world. Not anymore, no. Seems like he's on the verge of starting some sort of guerrilla terrorist organizations on the outskirts of Carlisle. He, He no longer believes the government. He no longer believes the media. He no longer believes the health establishment. It's almost like... He's come to the conclusion that big money and big pharma have influenced government policy like it does in in every other fucking area. I was just watching the Bernie Madoff documentary on Netflix and it's just textbook that like the regulatory bodies, Bernie Madoff himself and, and the organization and the organization he ran, they were all sort of in cahoots, all in the same circles, all working together. And that's exactly what happens in all of these places. In finance, it's exactly what happened in Grenfell, in the building, in manufacturing. It's what happens with Carillion. It's what happens in private contracting, in prisons. Oh, but it doesn't happen in medicine. Although, okay, it does happen in medicine all the time, but not when it comes to coronavirus. That was too serious. But the thing is, you start talking about something like this and people immediately think, oh, I know where this is going. You're an anti-vaxxer or whatever. And that's right, it is where it's going, am <laughs> No, it's, it's, I mean, one of the problems is the bloody anti-vaxxers, right? There may well be a problem with the vaccine. And sure, some people, maybe a lot of people, were too confident in this rush through process that everything was above board and the vaccines were great. But that was partly a reaction to the bombardment of anti-vax bullshit that was coming out at the time. So if you remember, this is a bit of a rundown of uh, the COVID conspiracy theory. How I remember anyway, it goes something like this. Uh, COVID isn't real. That was the first thing. Also, (laughs) despite not being real, it was made in a lab. But the main thing to take home is that it's harmless. The real problem is the fear mongering in the press, which is making people psychosomatically drop their oxygen levels and 
and just die. But actually, no, that's not what's happening. What's really happening is it's 5G that's killing everyone. But despite that, actually, no one's dying. Because if you look at the hospitals, they're all empty, actually. And it's just like, okay, so if you have a COVID conspiracy that basically covers every single possibility of anything that could that remotely likely or unlikely to go wrong in the process of there being or not being a virus and there being or not being a vaccine to protect against that possible virus. If you're going to, if all of that is going to be spouted all the time, continuously, on the same kind of level, right, because all of it was being spouted by various people, anti-vax groups and various YouTubers and stuff, then it's very hard in, under those circumstances to know what would be a legitimate possible will be legitimately a problem what's actually based on any evidence what's likely to actually be something we should be concerned about and that's on the anti-vaxxers for one because a lot of people were, were just instinctively very just very dismissive of covid and they take and they just took on whatever form that would be it doesn't exist or it's something else or whatever and we're happy to promote all of that kind of stuff but then on the other side, there was the official narrative and a lot of people who backed that narrative who dismissed all of that in its entirety as anti-vax stuff. And so none of it could possibly be true at all. And so then if, you know, something happens like maybe the vaccine, just for example, isn't quite as effective as people thought it might be. That's like, oh, that's an anti-vax talking point. That's it's like, well, it could it could also be true. Anyway, Britain has downgraded uh, the vaccine rollout, the fourth or possibly fifth jab that you can get right now. So anyone under 50 is not able to get it. Well, it says if you have an underlying health condition, then you can still get it if you're under 50. But most people can't get it. I think this is coming sort of mid-February. After that, you can't get it anymore. You know, and it's like, oh, no, it's not really a big change. It's like, well... Only a few years ago, you, you basically had civil liberties taken away from you if you didn't get it. It was like the most important thing you could possibly do. And now you're unable to do it. That is quite a substantial change in policy, but it's not being talked about at all. So, you can, you know, so that's the thing. It's like, I'm not saying I know why this is happening. But, the, you know, I'm skeptical about it just being like, well, firstly, that it's not really a big change at all. And secondly, it's just happening because what, like, we don't need the vaccine anymore. So, well, why can I not get it if I want it? No, can't get it anymore. So, and there's just no reporting on why this might be the case. On top of that, of course, you do still have the excess deaths that are completely unexplained. And so this is John Campbell four days ago. Welcome to today's talk, Sunday the 5th of February. Now, we want answers as to why more people are dying than usual. The excess deaths are high and we want a breakdown of all the possibilities that could be causing this excess deaths, these excess deaths. Now, this is Esther McVeigh in the British Parliament speaking on this matter. Let's just uh, listen to it. Fairly brief clip. Public health. Mr McVeigh. Mr Speaker. It's good to see uh, Parliament actually quite a few people there normally when you see these things it's like just the person who's delivering the speech and the speaker and so maybe one other guy it's like oh i didn't realize i was i must have fallen asleep 
Chief Medical Officer recently warned that current non-COVID excess deaths is being driven in part by patients not getting statins or blood pressure medicines during the pandemic. But when looking at the data on statins in openprescribing.net, which is based on monthly NHS prescribing, there appears not to be a drop. So where is the evidence? And if there isn't one, what is causing these excess deaths? Will the Minister commit to an urgent and thorough investigation on the matter? Well, we are seeing a, a, an increase in excess deaths in this country, but we're also seeing that in Wales, uh, in Scotland, uh, in Northern Ireland and across Europe. And there are a range of factors. There is an increase, as we saw um, in December, in the number of people being admitted with flu, with COVID and with other uh, healthcare conditions. And this is not something that's just seen in this country, but across Europe as well. This is what John Campbell had to say. I mean, what kind of answer is that? Yes, it's a problem. That's why we, that's why we want the answer to this. Um, so to call for an urgent and thorough review is completely reasonable. The, the, the minister concerned is actually um, Maria Caulfield, who I've, I've actually got a bit of time for Maria Caulfield. Oh, really. do you, um, John? Uh, she, she's the, uh, the parliamentary under secretary of state. Um, first question there is why wasn't the Minister of Health answering the question? Because this is a pretty serious matter. One thing I think quite funny about what's happening now is, so during the pandemic, a lot of anti-vaxxers were saying, you know, that all this fear-mongering about COVID is actually causing people to get sick. You know, when people get so worried and so concerned about something, they, they can develop the symptoms, they can develop a cough, uh, and <laughs> they can die of, uh, of thinking that they're, they've got COVID or something, thinking they've got this thing that they've made up called COVID. Surely now, it's the other way around, surely the anti-vaxxers are now fear-mongering about the vaccine. All, all, all of us poor people have been vaccinated. We're, you know, we have to live like this. And you're telling us all this scary stuff. It's making me feel ill. So uh, cut that out right now. Second thing is data. I remember at the time, there was like, oh, there's been a lot of excess deaths in uh, 2020. So, oh, no, there hasn't really. They're, they're skewing the data. Don't believe it. The hospitals are empty. And then now the data is suggesting that there's still excess deaths and it's not to do with COVID. And people are like, oh, you see, look, it's probably the vaccine or something. Look at the data. <laughs> and <laughs> you can't, you know, this is where we are. Like, and, you know, I think it's the same in Ukraine. It's like whenever the Russians do something bad, it's like, oh, look, look what the Russians have done. Unbelievable. And then whenever Ukraine does anything bad, it's like, well, that's war. And also they didn't do it the centre and the right of the party. I always get in trouble when I use these terms. This is uh, Michael Crick on Not the Andrew Marr Show, <laughs> which is a pretty low place, a pretty low bar for the, someone like, of Michael Crick's calibre to be... Uh... But then, you know, you've got to wonder about Michael Crick's journalism. Purged, frankly, in the selection round, any, uh, any left-wing candidate. I mean, even sort of soft left-wing candidates. So, you know, I mean, Angela Rayner wouldn't get selected now. Robin Cook or Neil Kinnock or, or any of those people from the left in the past. So Michael Crick, who probably most famously was the Channel 4 political correspondent or political editor or whatever, uh, he's just slowly discovering, just coming to terms with what's going on in the Labour Party just in, in the last few weeks, I guess. Um, actually, it's probably a few months, to be fair to him. And uh, he's speaking out about it now. Wouldn't, wouldn't get selected in this round of selections. There's only one Labour candidate who 
I think one can say is on the left, uh, and that's uh, Pfizer Shaheen in Chingford and, and uh, Woodford Green. The idea, right, with all of these journalists is that they know what's going on, but they don't care because they're evil and Jewish. No, because <laughs> so, they're just evil. Might be Jewish, doesn't matter. Not important. Or they do know what they do know what's going on, and they would like to call it out, but they can't because they're too scared about their careers and they're being silenced by their editor. Uh, but this is not the case with Michael Crick, it seems. So um, this is you know, supposedly one of the most, uh, certainly one of the most well-known, and certainly someone who has for a long time had quite a large platform. Someone that people would imagine is isn't a bit of an authority on British politics, knows what's going on. They apparently. Are, just don't know. Just just starting to fathom. It's just starting to cl- clock. Just starting to clock what, for example, this small YouTube channel here that is made in- entirely with research done from my bedroom on a laptop. I never leave the house. I, you know, I, I learned this, I don't know, a few years ago. Job or hardly anybody who does what you might say is a working class job or a low paid job um as being selected there it's all incredibly middle class let's make up some puns of michael crick i mean i can understand why uh, starmer and his henchmen so uh how about michael crick he's a bit of a crick in the neck isn't he <laughs> oh i uh, you know most of whom the key figures in his entourage uh come from very um partisan the Crick and the Dead? No? Uh, Labour right, to be, call it blunt, or right mm. wing uh, backgrounds within the party and ran organisations by like Labour first and so on. Getting down with the Crickness. Um, I mean, I make these criticisms, even though my own politics, if anything, are that sort of area. But I'm okay. a pluralist as well. So... Michael Crick goes on the left wing, not the Andrew Marr YouTube channel, which has 8,000 subscribers. It's a very small channel, although it is getting quite a lot of interesting guests lately. But he's going on there to talk about the fact that he thinks that he's just discovered this, this groundbreaking theory of his that he reckons that Keir Starmer, yeah, Keir Starmer of all people, is purging left wing members of the Labour Party. And he is shocked He's shocked to discover this. How is this not? How is this not being reported before? And yet he's sort of answering his own question: the fact that he's on not the Andrew Marr show, rather than the Andrew Marr show, which he would have been on uh, a year ago, say, or would still be on if he was talking about any other issue. But you can't talk about this on the mainstream media. And what I think is interesting is why don't the Tories even come up with this attack line? Like. There is clearly, like, the Tories are, are attacking Starmer, you know, Sunak's attacking Starmer a lot on, oh, you were friends with Jeremy Corbyn, you backed Jeremy Corbyn, which is a good attack line, don't get me wrong. But an even better one would be, hey, look at all of these people in your own party, like the Holocaust survivor just the other week, who you chucked out. What's that all about, Starmer? That's, that doesn't look good. That's bad optics, isn't it, for, for someone that's completely obsessed with optics? But the, the, the Tories don't want to attack Labour on this. And even if it was bullshit, which it isn't, but if it was, that's never stopped the Tories in the past. The point is that it's something that credible journalists, or at least previously credible until they came up with this crazy idea, Michael Crick, Peter Oborn, they've started questioning this kind of stuff. Why why don't the Tory rags do it? it? Seems very strange to me. Anyway, let's get back to Crick. So Crick's talking about 
he's con- he's concerned that left wing members of the Labour Party are getting unfairly treated. You're absolutely right. You do need a variety of opinions and views in a political party. You know, uh, a plane without two wings won't fly. Yeah, but the Labour yeah, but the Labour Party isn't a plane. We call it a wing. So if you have a, it's like well, I I don't call it the right wing. I call it the right finger. And you need five, actually ten. You need ten fingers. So actually, I call it if you call it a um, penis, the right, then you need one. You just need the right penis, just the right. If you call it a bollock, then we're back. We're back to the left-right dichotomy. And and um, the by purging the left like this, uh, they are purging a strand of strands of opinion that and strands of challenge. And a confident Labour leader, somebody like Clement Attlee or Harold Wilson or Jim Callaghan uh, or Tony Blair even, was 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 happy, and Gordon Brown, they were all happy to have uh, prominent left-wingers in their cabinet. And what Crick is thinking is like, oh, well, you know, what we need is a nice, safe, kind of siloed left-wing that's inside the party that look, sort of gives us a little bit of credibility with certain voters and demographics, whatever. I don't even know if actually even that, but it's just nice, isn't it? It's nice to have a left wing. And Starmer knows that that just isn't the case anymore. The the left wing is actually quite a considerable threat. And more than that, the policies of the left are way more popular than anything he's got going on. So it's it's a very different sort of situation, particularly to Blair, where, yeah, he wasn't scared to have a left wing because they weren't a threat to him. The other reason I worry about it is that the whole process has been so authoritarian that I wonder whether his government is going to be an authoritarian government as well, in, in the sense that uh, the way, for instance, he treats the media um, and, uh, you know, certain... Uh, media um, freedom issues, uh, you may well, if you're going to be authoritarian in terms of purging uh, dissent within your party, once you reach power, that may potentially lead to dissent when it, uh, sorry, to purging when it comes to, uh, you know, critics on the, on the national stage in in the national uh, media. And that worries me. I mean, you know, Labour governments have- Purging the media. Uh, you know, not being very friendly towards the media in the past. <laughs> not being very friendly towards the media. The media tried their best to be friends with Labour leaders. Michael Crick certainly did. I remember Michael Crick's uh, reporting on the other Labour purges, which happened when Corbyn was becoming leader, against the exact same people, against the left. And he was very gleeful about that. I find this curious because, of course, you know, Keir Starmer has a background as a human rights lawyer, as you know a civil libertarian look look into his background more quick please <laughs> he was uh he was a civil rights lawyer so um that sounds sounds good doesn't it like the word civil rights lawyer like the phrase civil the title civil rights lawyer sounds pretty good bill gates well he's a philanthropist dennis nielsen worked at the old job center plus helping people get back on their feet I actually used to go to Kentish Town Job Centre Plus. That was my, that was my job centre actually. And there were there were good guys down there. I have to say, that reminds me actually. So I was gonna I was gonna tell a little story about about my own my own woes. 
So I'm on a I'm on a prepayment meter because I'm keeping it real. And if you're on a prepayment meter, then the way that the government grants for energy works is that you get you get a letter every month for about sixty five quid or whatever, and you have to take that down to the post office with photo ID, which you need to have your address on it really. And the only photo ID that has my address on it is my driving license, which is very old and has my old address on it and so they every time they're like well this address doesn't match your address so and i'm like i'm not how would i have the letter why would i have the name of someone with the same name how would i get their letter but but in january i didn't get the letter i didn't get my um i didn't get my government grant so i'm with edf as well (laughs) i'm trying to change i'm trying to move to octopus or i'm I'm not, you know, in many ways, I've only got myself to blame here, but I'm with fucking EDF and they're absolute shite. So when, so I go onto EDF's website and the only way you can really get in contact with them is through this chat thing that they have. Uh, so you open up the chat and the chat bot, there's a chat bot that's trying to fob you off. Oh, you want to speak to someone? Have you thought about not speaking to someone and reading this shit? So no, can I speak to someone? And so eventually like, oh, actually, oh, I see. You want to speak to someone, do you? Well, there's no one available. How about we move this chat to WhatsApp? <laughs> give me your phone number. So, all right, I give them my phone number. And then they about five minutes later, they send me a WhatsApp. and like, oh, hello, this is EDF WhatsApp. Do you want to... What what's your problem? Like I've never heard of you before. Who are you? I'm like it's I'm this, you just sent me the WhatsApp message, and now I have to go through all this stuff again and again. They're trying to fob me off, and I'm like, okay, no, 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 no. Let me speak to someone. Let's speak to someone. And then it goes. More people than usual are contacting us, and it's taking longer than normal to get through to our agents. Our agents should reply to you within 24 hours. They're working extremely hard to do all they can to support you. So we do ask that you show kindness and respect to them today. <laughs> today. I love the optimism of that. So that was uh, on Friday the 27th of January at 1.50 in the afternoon. On Sunday the 29th of January at 9.46 in the morning, they get back to me and they say, this is a response to your open inquiry. Hello, hope you're doing well. Thank you for contacting EDF Energy. I apologize that it has taken longer than you expected for me to respond to you, and thank you for your patience and waiting. I will raise this with our team. They will resolve this for you and investigate on this. Please <laughs> please, re- please, be rest assured. Please respond if you would like to continue the conversation. So that was at 9.46. A minute later, they wrote... There was a response to your open inquiry. If there is anything else at all we can help, please feel free to get back to us. We'll be happy to help. To help us improve, we'd like to answer. We'd like you to answer a few questions about your experience. It will not take much time and will help us to meet your expectations. So they sent me this at 9.47. And then it says, please respond if you would like to continue the conversation. And then <laughs> immediately after that, still 9.47, they say, thanks for chatting to us today. I'm just going to grab some feedback on your conversation. And then straight after that, 9.47, question one, how easy was it to deal with EDF on this occasion? Then I responded at 9.49, so that's three minutes after their initial response at 9.46, which was two days after I talked to them. So I got back to them pretty quickly, but, but apparently, because I didn't respond between 9.46 and 9.47 to that initial message, 
which said, please respond if you would like to continue the conversation. They assumed that I didn't want to continue it and they'd already moved on to the survey questions that are automa- that automatically come up after the conversation supposedly finished. So I said, I would like to continue. And then they responded, sorry, I didn't get that. Please select one of the following options. Question one, how easy was it to deal with EDF on this occasion? From one, very difficult to five, very easy. So what does that mean? Does that mean that I've missed because I didn't resp- they they took two days to respond and then because I didn't respond within one minute, they assumed that the conversation was over. It's it's insane. So I responded two, and then they asked me question two. Have you have we done everything you needed? Have you have we done everything you needed? Please reply yes or no. I said no. That's not and then they said, that's not good, but thanks for letting us know. We really appreciate it. Question three. We're keen to learn from this, so please tell us what we can do better. Respond faster. Okay, we'll let them know. Thanks. 9.50. That was the end of the conversation. So I don't know. Like in the initial one, they said, we will investigate this. And then they said, please respond if you would like to continue the conversation. I didn't respond in time in one minute. I didn't respond in the crick of time. Yeah. How about that? I mean, I don't want to get involved in all of this. Uh, it, it trouble is it's an absolute minefield and even me saying this to you is going to result in goodness knows how many uh, comments on twitter and it's an incredibly complicated issue well i don't it's a my it's like what's his, his his point is i don't want to uh it's difficult it's i'm i'm a political journalist but this is a really difficult thing and people are going to make comments on twitter that i'm going to find difficult <laughs> that's his that's his defense oh it's i'm i'm too lazy too lazy to deal with this to be honest I mean in my case people have a difficulty pigeonholing me um, which I like because I like to be I like I think the, you know the role of a journalist is to surprise people the role of a journalist is to sneak up on people say boo and that concludes another episode of complaints on a podcast Join us next week for more adventures. Who knows what those crazy characters, which is basically just myself, (laughs) on my own. Who knows what crazy adventures I'll be getting into. What scrapes and japes.